All right, so we are having a few, we had a few technical difficulties, but let's just uh, start over. So what I didn't do last time, this is cool because it gives me a chance to do this. I'm going to just sort of like set up who you are a little bit. Um, I was I was too jagged up on coffee to do that. Um, I still like can't stop blinking now. But um, anyway, <laughs> so um, today I am interviewing David Bates from the C.S. Lewis podcast, Pints with Jack, a few years ago, as, as you guys know, because I never stopped talking about it. Um, I read several of Lewis's books, and they had a huge impact on the way I see everything, really. So once that happened, I went uh, into the podcast world to see what was what was going on with um, with Lewis there. And so I came across um, his podcast and have been a fan of it for, for a long, I guess, a, a long time now. <laughs> and um, yeah, so today I just wanted to um, get to know him a little bit better and have him sort of walk through his personal journey with Lewis in the way that um, both Lewis has changed his, you know, view of, of God generally, and and then maybe just the way that maybe Lewis has changed the culture's view of, of God. So, yeah. So um, before all of that, yeah, just tell me a bit about the way you were brought up and and where you were raised and all that stuff. Sure thing. So I was born and raised in the south of England, um, in the county of Berkshire. And uh, that's why my accent is the way that it is. I often like to tell people that this is how words are meant to sound. Everything, everything else should be set to this standard. Uh, if an Englishman can't have a smug sense of superiority, what can he have? Uh, so, yeah, so I was born and raised in the south of England and uh, I was raised in the church. My mother was Catholic, Catholic and she took us to mass and uh, we had a, a really vibrant parish. Uh, but... I have a question about that. Sure. So... Do they do mass every day or do they do it every week? I know this is a very dumb question that no, like, not still. <laughs> you know, but it's just like, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't ask Jimmy. He's too intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> nah, Jimmy isn't intimidating. No, he's, he couldn't have been nicer really. But <laughs> uh, So we have mass once a week on Sundays okay. and you certainly can go to mass during the week. Uh, okay. I personally didn't start doing that until my early thirties okay. uh, when I started uh going to mass to, as a way to start my day is it in like yeah so is it in like the morning or do they do it like where you just like come in at any time and there's something going on or something how does that work it can be in the morning it can be at lunchtime it can be in the evening when i first started it was because my one of my ooh, hang on, a little bit of oh no. uh, it can be either it can be in the morning it can be in the middle of the day it can be after work when i first began it was at uh, I think it was at 6 a.m., something horrible like that. Oh, wow. uh, and I did it because one of my housemates would always get up and, and I would hear him leave. Yeah. And uh, I would I would just want to be that virtuous. Uh, but when I... I thought you were going to say he later, woke you up anyway. Well, he did that as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, also one place where I worked, there was mass at 12.07, which literally gave me seven <laughs> minutes to get to the church. And hmm. you'd usually walk in and everything would just be starting. But other places do it after work so you can stop by then so sure. it really varies yeah i think that's and i think that's super cool as we go into a time where people are more and more isolated and more in their own little bubble i think mm -hmm. there are these certain this is so fascinating to me because i uh you know i was raised protestant and, and still am protestant but there are just certain aspects of these more traditional uh you know views of christianity that are starting to i think they're in the future going to be more at a premium like the sort of communal aspect. I think we're moving into a future where all the flash and lights or whatever that we're so inundated with 
you know, with technology and our, our sort of affiliation with technology is going to keep increasing. So I think that's going to keep making us more and more lonely. And so these ideas like, like that, like every day being in this communal um, setting with, with all these people that care about the things you do, like those things are going to, we're going to, I think our culture is going to see the value in things like that more and more. Um, well, a very traditional aspect um, of Catholicism and Orthodoxy and High Church Anglicanism is the is the office, the divine office. So it's mm -hmm. the morning, midday, and evening prayers, and sometimes there are a few more sprinkled in. And at various points in my life, I've had people with whom I could pray that, and I do that now with my wife. At the end of the day, we we close out with night prayer, yeah. and. You can have all of these things on your phone, and they're very useful, uh, but nothing really replaces a, a good old-fashioned book. <laughs> I have one other, I have one other question. This may seem like non sequiturs, I don't know, but um, what is the difference? Because I, I read this in a book the other day, like high Anglo, high Anglo, Anglicanism. I don't know why that word is so mm. hard to say. Like, what is the difference between low Anglicanism and high? Like, is it like you know peasants go to one and like. <laughs> You know, like the well-off people go to the other one. Like, how does how do they distinguish? Well, I, I think it would depend on who you ask. I think high income would say the peasants <laughs> so go to the low one. So it doesn't mean that, even uh, though they think it doesn't. Got it. No, I'm, I'm just joking. So typically when we talk about high and low, it's mm -hmm. in reference to the liturgy in terms of okay. how traditional is it, how formal is it, how mm -hmm. uh, does it use set prayers, or is it just extemporaneous? Okay. Uh, and so, so high, 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 more... high Anglicanism will look basically like Catholicism. Oh, okay. They, they will typically referred to an altar, there will be candles, there will be robes, whereas in low church Anglicanism, there'll be much less of that, and everything will be much more informal. I gotcha. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. So you're raised in, you're raised in England, we'll get back, we'll get back to what, back on track, but um, yeah, so you're raised in England, and your parents were, both your parents were Catholic, or just your mom? No, just just my mum. Uh, but she took us. She took us to mass, and like I said, it was a it was a great parish, and I was involved in the altar serving. My sister was involved in the what we call children's liturgy. So quite often, the children will leave during the liturgy of the word when all the scriptures read. So they'll go to another hall, and they'll they will they will either have an activity or they will have a the children's version of that read, and they'll talk mm -hmm. about it in in that in that environment. Uh, but anyway, so that that would happen. But long, long before that, one of my great influences was the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother and sister typically used it as bribery. It was a way of getting me to go to bed. It was a way of getting me to stay in the bath rather than sort of dip my toe in and say, I'm all done. Uh, <laughs> what would typically happen is I'd get in and they would read me a chapter of the Chronicles of Narnia. And I was a huge fan. I absolutely adored that series. Mm -hmm. And my mother took us to go and see a few uh, plays, a few adaptations of the books. Mm -hmm. And she always liked to tell the story of seeing me transfixed because I knew Aslan was about to come on the stage. And she said, all the other children were screaming and running around. And she said, you, you knew who was about to come in and you were, you were just holding your breath. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Chronicles of Narnia were huge in my life. I actually broke my ankle. I broke a bone in my foot. And uh, I actually had to uh, push myself around on this giant uh, push-along toy uh, since I couldn't walk anymore. And it was a giant plastic lion who was inevitably called Aslan. <laughs> that's, that's really cool. I actually think that, you know, when I have kids one day that I will perhaps introduce Christianity as a whole to them that way. And I, I actually haven't even read the books myself at, at this point. I've just read the more nonfiction stuff. But, but I think it's a beautiful 
way to introduce Christianity as a story first. And then I had kind of the opposite uh, upbringing in, in regards to Lewis. Like I was, uh, you know, I was in one of those families where like my youth group or whatever went to see the like movie adaptation and and I had those like parents that were like, I don't know if you should go to that. You know, they're like overly like, you know, protective in that way. And those parents always get dunked on for obvious reasons. But the other thing that that meant was that even though they had some, uh, you know, maybe they were too protective in, in ways like that, they also, there were good aspects that came with that, that, that they were, they really, really, you know, loved me. And they weren't, there were all these like, I guess what I'm trying to say is people get very um, harsh when it comes to their parents being, you know, sort of rigorous in that way. And mm-hmm. and I understand why, but there was all this like, uh, there's all this love that went with how careful they were, I guess. And that I'll probably see even more as I as I have kids. But um, yeah, so so you were introduced to that very, to Narnia very young. And that was uh, sort of a gateway, I guess. Um, yeah, so tell me about as you became more like adolescent years and all that stuff like what was your um did you have a time of sort of veering from the faith or or you know doubting or whatever just like what came after that Mm. uh no real doubting per se there was definitely a period of distinct questioning and one of the greatest things that i remember my mother saying to me said just keep asking questions and just Mm. keep talking to me and she was also very good at putting really smart people in front of me. So mm-hmm. I was going to a, a school. It was run by a bunch of Benedictine monks. And we had some really smart cookies there. <laughs> and so she had these people in my life to whom I could also ask questions. And so I never really had any great rebellion against the faith. And I actually, I, I would say I grew I grew in my faith. I really enjoyed reading scripture and I loved going to mass particularly because where we went to church at this point it was a Benedictine monastery and so it had these gothic uh, arches and it was beautiful chant Mm. and I always remember enjoying the peace and quiet after communion when there was a few minutes silence and I, I really really remember reveling in that and then I went to university and it was there that my faith really came alive I met a missionary called Maeve. She was part of a group called Verbum Dei, literally means Word of God. And uh, what they would do is that they, they would often help out with the chaplaincy. Uh, and the group's big charism, their big calling and gifting was uh, evangelism and prayer with scripture. And so I basically became part of that group while I was at university. And it was then that I started reading you know, entire books of the Bible and really starting to learn about the faith and then after university it sort of all came crashing down a little bit as i went out and got a job and experienced regular parish life Mm -hmm. you know walked into this place and it was just like oh this seems dead nobody is Mm -hmm. doing anything nobody cares about anything it all seems rote and Mm -hmm. Uh, and there there have been enough things said about uh, insipid sermons (laughs) that where jesus is really just telling us we need to be nicer (laughs) (laughs) So I, I, I spent a couple of years wandering around different churches uh, and I was, I was really fed very well there. I, I went to a Pentecostal church when I was living in Salisbury. And then when I moved to Cheltenham, I went to an Anglican church. Although they, they were technically Anglican, but they were, they were very low church. So they were, they were much more like your average evangelical church. Mm-hmm. And I really grew and I, I developed there. And actually it was then that I really started to engage Lewis. 
because I was babysitting for my small group leaders. Uh, they were teaching a drugs awareness course to other parents. And so while they were doing that, I was looking after their kids. Mm-hmm. And I was a guy in his mid-20s. I didn't really know how you look after children. Yeah. Uh, so I just did what my mom and sister did. I bribed them. It was like, okay, if everybody is changing to their pajamas, they have their teeth brushed, etc., we will do a chapter of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, that was to hand. I think they had just started chapter one, so I just ran with it. And as I was reading it to them, with voices, I might add, uh, <laughs> I just fell in love with Narnia again because I hadn't really touched this stuff since mm-hmm. I was probably about 11. Sure. And so I was babysitting for, for once a week for, I think, a couple of months. And so we pretty much got through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And once that was finished, I went out and bought the complete box set mm-hmm. and just devoured them again. Uh, I had returned to my first love, as the Book of Revelation might say. Yeah, and and perhaps the years in between of you know of your walk with God or whatever allowed you to, and just getting older, you sort of pick up different things you wouldn't have picked up as a kid. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, I, deeper. You know? Yeah, I remember when we were reading the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and Aslan says to uh, Lucy that you have come here uh, for a little while so that you will know me better back in your own world. And there you'll know me by another name. And I remember my mother asking me if I knew what that name was. And she said, it's Jesus. And that just seemed really weird to me. Jesus is a man. Aslan is a lion. What are you talking about? Uh, But yes, no. Given that my faith had now come alive, I had read much more scripture and uh, I think understood my faith much better than I did as a child. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the, The books just seemed so rich to me. And because I was going to an Anglican church at the time, I had people around me that said, oh, you know, he wrote other things as well. And so that was when I read Mere Christianity, The Great Divorce, Problem of Pain, and The Screwtape Letters. And this was when my official love for C.S. Lewis definitely became cemented. But it wasn't until a few years later after I'd moved to the States that I decided that I wanted to go deeper. I, I read an occasional Lewis book from time to time. I read The Abolition of Man and wasn't quite sure if I understood it. Uh, but I, I bumped into a guy at a party called Matt. And as what happens at parties, you start talking about C.S. Lewis. That's what I do at any rate. That's how I was going to say, I don't, know, I don't know if this is like a British thing, but if you go to most <laughs> American parties, that will not be your experience. Yeah, so I've heard you one. say that before. I was like, I would love to be at these parties. I don't know like what parties these are, but like I've never been to one. Well, I don't want to talk about sports. Boring. Okay, come on. Let's <laughs> no, exa- uh, exactly. Yeah. Let's talk I, about till we have faces. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just uh, and, yeah. I love I love that it's just like natural to you. Like like it's so natural to the like people that you are around that you're just like, oh, this is what we do. <laughs> Well, what happens when you read Lewis is you tend to quote him a lot and people tend to start noticing. It's like, oh, so you like C.S. Lewis. You need to go and talk to this guy over here. (laughs) Uh, And I I had been saying for a little while that I wanted to start a reading group where we would go through C.S. Lewis. One of the books that really changed me was The Four Loves, which is actually what we're about to start going through this season. And the book was very rich and I still wasn't quite sure what I made of it. And there were a few things in it that blew my mind. And I really just wanted to read it again but with somebody and talk about it Uh, so when i met matt and found out that he was a lewis nerd as well i suggested all right let's 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 start a reading group even if it's just the two of us and a cup of coffee or a pint i think it'll be great and so i advertised it on facebook and a bunch more people turned up and so we started doing that monthly 
And then sort of two things happened. One, uh, I wasn't happy that we were going through this stuff so quickly. We were going through mere Christianity. It's made up of four books. We were doing one book per session, which yeah. was about an hour. And that, against, you know? Yeah, that was just like, this is this. we're going through this too quickly. I have more thoughts. That's one of the things uh, that I love most about it is like, I, I've read so many books where they felt like they had one idea and that they basically told that idea over and over again for 200 pages. Mm -hmm. and, and Lewis's books generally are just the opposite of that, where like one page has like 10 ideas. Yes. And, I, and I'm like, this is what a book is supposed to be. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is truly worthy of a book. And, you know, for a while even, I actually kind of thought that maybe I, I found reading itself sort of uh, boring because I was just reading books that were themselves boring. Um, mm -hmm. but why did you move to the States and what was the sort of impetus behind, behind that? Well, all of my friends, so I was in my mid twenties at this point and it seemed like all of my friends were doing very grown up things. They were all getting <laughs> mortgages and peer pressure is, is something. So I went to the bank and booked an appointment and I was bored out of my mind. I think the meeting must've only been half an hour, but I, I, I mentally checked out after about five minutes. I didn't care. I had counted the ceiling tiles and I was replaying episodes of friends in my head just to try and stop myself from falling asleep. So after that experience, I concluded I'm not ready to buy a house yet. Yeah. But I felt like I should be doing something like all of my friends are doing. So I thought, mm -hmm. well, why don't I work abroad for a little while? Uh, that seemed like a, a good adventure to go on. And thanks to British colonialism, there's a bunch of other places in the world that I can go and work and I don't have to learn another language. <laughs> uh, and I'd already visited Australia and I had visited America briefly. Uh, so I thought I might go back there. And I had ended up learning a new technology that was used by a company they were they had multiple sites but primarily in california mm -hmm. and so i contacted them and had a phone interview and they offered me a job yep. so i went to dc for a little while and then ultimately moved to san diego and worked there right i got you so um what about your recent you recently moved to the, the midwest somewhere right mm -hmm. how yes, has that we... been and what was your your you know what was the decision to do that uh, there, there were a lot of things in play on that one. Sure. Uh, the move has been fantastic. Uh, it is beautiful. So we got the sort of end of summer and we're going into fall. Uh, I'm a little trepidatious about winter, but I'm sure we'll be fine. <laughs> uh, but uh, a lot of my wife's family had been talking about moving for a good while, just moving somewhere a little cheaper. Sure. California and San Diego are not cheap. Yeah. Uh, and particularly if you start having kids and, and yeah. want someone to stay home, it's really helpful to live somewhere a little bit cheaper. Yeah. And then the house next door to my brother-in-law in Wisconsin went on the market and we were in a position that we could jump on this. Yeah. And so we did. And so I spent a Saturday filling out a bunch of paperwork for financial things. And before we knew it, we had just bought a house in Wisconsin and we were moving there. <laughs> That's awesome. So you have, you have some family there. What has it been like as far as your... Like, it's just hard moving to a new place because you start to know a bunch of people wherever you do live. And then when you move somewhere else, you're, you're new again. Like, has that been, has that been like strange or, uh, or have you, you know, how has that been? Well, I, I've done the whole move to a new place where you knew nobody. I've done that multiple times in my life. Uh, sure. In addition to DC, I did the same thing in Seattle. Uh, so I'm somewhat practiced at it and learned the lesson that if you want to build a, a community, you got to go out there and build it. Right. Uh, 
this time it has been different because one, we have family here. Yeah. Literally all of my wife's family is moving to here now. Yeah. So this has been incredibly easy. We have a support network immediately. Right. Uh, at, but my plan actually is to start a new C.S. Lewis reading group probably sometime in the new year because uh, we also just had our first child. So I'm up to my yeah, elbows and yeah. diapers most of the day. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in the new year, I'm going to start a new C.S. Lewis reading group. And that's where I'm going to go and find some friends. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. And I, I asked that for this seems like one of those sort of um, mundane points. But like, I think that loneliness is gonna it is probably already but certainly in the future is going to be like number one issue and so these small details of like how do you build a community like that question is going to be like the question it maybe mm-hmm. already is we're all pulling into our own little bubble inside our head or whatever and and we're losing these ties to, to everything around us and um yeah just all of those skills or whatever are really going to be at a premium i think in the in the coming years but um obviously church is a huge a huge piece of that puzzle too right because i mean you obviously have a lot in common with the people there even if you don't have superficial things in common Um, absolutely and actually that was when i when i was initially in washington dc i was i had moved just before my birthday and i was a little bit worried about what it'd be like having my my birthday in a new country a long way from home Uh, but church made they're a real continuity. And my birthday was around Easter that year. And there I saw real continuity because I had loved the, the liturgy at the monastery back home where I, where I grew up. I had, I always came back for Easter wherever I was living. Uh, but here I was now on the other side of the world and the liturgy was still the same. There was still the bonfire. There was still the lighting of the Easter candle and it being brought into the church uh, to cries of the light of Christ. Hmm. And that is the wonderful thing about church that wherever you go, you have family. Yeah. I think even from a pragmatic angle, that is a huge like blessing that, that a, a religious life gives you, even if you, even if you didn't believe it, just that thing alone is huge. But um, one other thing, how has being a parent changed you? Because I know you haven't been a parent super long, but I know it's, it's obviously not like anything else. So what has that experience <laughs> been like? I had one person say, when you're single, your happiness range is a sort of four to about a six or a seven. Uh, and then when you get married, it's a naught to a 10. And then <laughs> when you have a kid, it's like negative a thousand to positive a thousand. I, I think I would definitely say that's true. That's such a good way of, of explaining it because like that, yeah, that's, I, that rings true for me. Obviously I don't have kids yet, but since I've been married, like there's this constant um, small, like pain that I can't do exactly what I want when I want. And so it's like nagging, you know, this sort of like nagging irritation that like you have to care about other people now. Mm-hmm. But but when I do actually do the things that I want, I enjoy them more than I ever knew how to before that. Like when I just watch TV at the end of the day, I have like a small, I have this like quiet happiness in doing that that I never ever felt before before I was married. And there's this, this is huge for people of our generation because there is just this tie to to deep happiness and killing off this certain type of self-centeredness. You know, they have to go together, you know? And, oh, yeah. You know, I couldn't, and if I had to, if I had to be, you know, someone who never got married or, or whatever, if I was, I was in those shoes, I, I thought about recently, 
and I'm sure you know this from from having a from having a kid, that I so I can't even I can barely remember what it felt like to not be in the shoes I'm in now. I can't even really remember the struggles I had or like the like basically the spectrum that I was on then now because now I'm just thinking about my new problems and you know <laughs> and, all, and all the new stuff I got to do to be a good husband or whatever. But to I have so many friends that that aren't married and and that want to be that I, I tried to to think about that and. If I had to go back to being single, the one thing I would have done that I did not do was I would have like really sacrificed for something, some kind of like charity thing or something. And I didn't do that because I'm too self-centered. So I didn't, you know, go give a bunch of my money away or a bunch of my time away. I thought much more self-centered than that. I thought this is the time of my life where I can do whatever I want. Let me go do whatever I want. But what ended up happening was every time I went and did the things I wanted, I didn't really feel any of it. I didn't really enjoy any of it that much. I was neurotic basically the whole time. So I didn't really have this like deep sense of joy that only comes from sacrifice. And, you know, and then when you go that route, when you do sacrifice, there is this like nagging irritation that you still want what you want. And um, you know, it's this, it's just like an unfortunate thing about life that you never have everything, you know, something is, everything is a trade-off, you know, but, mm. um, <laughs> two rows diversion of wood. You've got to, you've got to pick one of them. <laughs> Can't <laughs> go down both wife? sides. How'd you meet your wife? I, I was giving a talk. I was giving a talk at a church. She had just come back from visiting a convent in Mexico. Uh, she had been considering religious life, concluded it wasn't for her. Uh, and then she came to my talk. And uh, well, it changes if I'm telling the story or if she's telling the story or if I'm telling the story and she's present. Uh, but I say that... <laughs> that last after, one is so funny to me. Well, I, I say that after the talk, she came up and asked some questions and outrageously flirted with me. Uh, so... <laughs> But yeah, that was, that was how we met. And, and then I asked her out on a date and we went to the local British pub for lunch. Cool. So and what we, were you giving a talk on? Were you giving a talk on Lewis or, or something in, along those lines? Not Lewis. I had been giving talks for a couple of years, traveling around the country just at the weekends. Remember when we could do that pre-COVID? It was wonderful. Uh, and when you were talking about uh, marriage before, there was it reminded me of a talk I gave called Is There Life Before Marriage? And the essential point of that talk is that uh, every man is called to be a father, every woman is called to be a mother. It's just a question of how that fatherhood and motherhood gets worked out. Mm. Uh, and and if, you, if you do it while you're single, marriage and uh, biological parenthood is, is much easier, I can tell you. Mm. Uh, but uh, no, I was giving a talk on, it was called Our Lady in the Old Testament, where I was explaining how uh, Mary, the mother of Christ, is foreshadowed in the Old Testament uh, under, under typology, basically that she is the new Ark of the Covenant, uh, she is the new Eve, and she is the, the new queen in the kingdom. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, I want to go into something you said right there a little bit more, and that is we... In America today, we're seeing kind of the what happens if you take individualism as an ends rather than as a means. And, you know, so individualism is, is one of the best aspects of America, and that's why it's, America is so innovative and all that stuff. But if we sort of move it up the, the hierarchy to being like 
this is our absolute good, then we're seeing what happens after that, that we have no, we're getting to a place where we have no moral consensus. So, you know, in sort of, we're in a, I, I see America as dying death by a thousand conveniences. I once heard a sermon by Adrian Rogers, and he said that righteousness is responsibility assumed. And so if that, and, and that's always stuck with me, if that is true, then wickedness is a convenience taken. You know, evil is not some dark thing that is, you know, in your closet. It's it's a convenience, a moral convenience. And so I think the reason that our sort of moral fabric is disintegrating, one of the reasons is that it gives each of us something that we want. And so it's hard to push back because there, there's something about the new convenience that I like, that I want, that I, you know, that appeals to me. And so because of that, I sort of go, okay, well, maybe this isn't so bad. And then because each of us do that, we sort of are giving away something that, I don't know, maybe 50 years from now, we'll realize we gave away. <laughs> but <laughs> but your, your description actually reminds me of the great divorce, hmm. where you see these souls in hell, they visit heaven, and they want to go back because they're not willing to give up their souvenirs of hell, hmm. the, the things that they are choosing over everything else. And I, th I think your point about individualism being raised to too high a level, that also echoes the four loves where Lewis says that when a natural love becomes a God, it becomes a demon and it even ceases to be a love. Mm. And so when we, when we have things in their wrong ordering, uh, St. Augustine spoke a lot about rightly ordered loves. When our ordering is incorrect, usually as a result of concupiscence, uh, havoc inevitably follows because things are not rightly ordered. Mm. Another, and, yeah. and, and we were built for each other. You know, that's one of the commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. We were made for community, both with each other and with the Trinity. Yeah, one, um, that's great. One of the things I've done recently, which seems like a sort of very small, insignificant thing, is I've tried to, I kind of think that our relationship to our phones is one of the like biggest, it's one of the biggest factors in what the future will become because you know, they, because the things you do every day change you more than any event. So I think that even though it seems insignificant, it is like maybe the one of the things that is going to shape how the future is different. So one of the things I've done recently, just as a small um, way to try to change the way I view it, is I've made I went into settings. Um, I was gonna. I was listening to Matt Fred, and I was gonna buy a. Yeah, uh, I wondered if you had stolen this from him. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. So I've thought about it for a long time, and um, and uh, and so he just really like, like really like lit the fire, I guess. But um, so yeah, so I found this phone called the Light Phone, which basically looks like a, a Kindle paperweight or whatever that thing's called, and uh, you know, it's it's just a really sophisticated non-smartphone. But but before buying that, because I'm cheap, really cheap. Um, before buying that, I decided to go on my iPhone settings and make everything black and white. So everything you know on my iPhone is is black and white. And as I did that, I started to see, I just started to like see the color of my actual life in a way that I didn't before that. And that sounds like corny or whatever, but but it's one of those things where I need, I want to loosen my, um, you know, I want to loosen the grip this thing has on me. I want to see something in my real life that is more enticing than anything that, you know, keeps me busy on my phone or whatever. So it's been a, uh, just an experiment to see how can I 
how can I really value my actual life? Because um, I, I'm sure, as you know, like even though we're we're both young, as you do get older, you do start to see like this is my life. Like if I wait, if I wait to think like I'm gonna get somewhere, and then that will be when my life starts. Like that is not gonna happen. So like this is what it is, and um, and I think there's just a huge correlation between. Um, our need for, you know, for distraction and our just overall feeling of numbness, like numbness as worldview. And, you know, so there's no, almost no high or low. We'd rather just have sort of a white noise machine. And uh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely spot on. I think how we relate to our phones shapes everything. It shapes how we do marriage. It shapes how we parent. It shapes how we do our work. All of these things are can, can be changed dramatically depending upon the relationship we have with our phones. And I did the grayscale thing as as well. I, it was it was a few years ago when I think I, I first heard Matt say exactly the same thing. And I thought, oh, I'm going to give this a go. And I then had the usage stats on my phone pop up. A week later, I found that I, I'd used my phone 40% less that week than I did before wow. simply because it's not all pretty and colory and yeah. uh and I turned off as many of the notifications as I could yeah yeah it's a huge it's a huge deal it seems it seems like it isn't but it really is gonna shape everything about what the future becomes and um one more one more thing on this I I've been seeing a lot of um I'm thinking about the correlation between let's say social media and the disintegration of church denominations so like if you think social media took these few very big very powerful and let's say very corrupt organizations and sort of took all their power away and gave it to every individual person and that has good and bad for which are you know which is obvious but that now that that is our new mode of living that church uh, denominations are perhaps suffering the same fate where rather they're these big powerful and uh innately you know corrupt because they have a lot of people in them uh and so we're now pulling into uh, a more decentralized uh way of living and that is good and bad but um but let's say the i heard someone something the other day that people used to choose their uh, politics by their religion and now people choose their religion by their politics and um, and the guy was saying that one of the reasons for that is that no matter how good your sermon is, people really are going to spend like 10 hours, uh, you know, a week or more with the people they listen to every day. Like they're really going to whoever they listen to every day really is going to shape, um, you know, who they become. And so in a way, podcasts like like yours and, and hopefully mine are are trying to as let's say as the people's attention moves to that. Uh, a, a, an area like that that we're trying to sort of Christianize in a in a very holistic way that new place where the uh, where the people's time and and as a result where influence sits. Um, but yeah, but we're in a sort of we're in a a time of disintegration for better and worse. And I'm seeing with um, something came out the other day which I I won't go into. But a Protestant pastor said something that was kind of uh, dumb but it, i'm, I'm kind of glad that he it was actually kind of i'm glad he said it because it was kind of revealing as to the state of of where uh where the church is 
And so we're seeing, again, we're seeing the what happens when, um, when individualism is in, in its corrupt forms is sort of flirted with, um, whether it be sort of the prosperity gospel or, or, or whatever, uh, or kind of more like therapeutic gospel. And, and something I love about Lewis is that he's so even-handed that um, I don't even want to paint this as, uh, oh, a, a gospel that makes you feel better is a bad thing. Like, thank God if it mm-hmm. does, right? Um, I once heard a guy, <laughs> I once heard a story of a, a pastor who every week he had this guy who would come and sleep in the back row. And, um, and he said, you know, that when someone talked to him about it, he said, like, this is the only place I feel safe. And so, you know, and so the, the, the pastor took it as a compliment that, that he did that because he felt safe there. So I, I do want to be even handed with that. But I think in some ways, as as weird as it might sound, I think the God of the Old Testament is the key to the future because the the sort of American view of God is he's such a um, he's so focused on me personally that and he's so much like he's basically so close to being my butler that I don't, I have like no reason to worship him really. He's not any bigger than I am. He's not really any more powerful than I am. He's really just kind of me, but idealized. And so he's like, you know, he likes the shows I like, like everything is very like self-centered in that way. And again, it's too easy for me to like um, get on my soapbox and act like, oh, you you dirty, corrupt, self-centered people. I'm not like you. Um, you know, I'm I'm much more um, holy than that, and I would never deem uh, I would never stoop to your level. That that isn't it at all. I would totally try that. Have tried that, and I'm sure we'll continue to try that. But that, you know, at the end of doing all the things you want, you're still miserable. And if we view God as very similar to us, then it won't work. Like for short term, it might work. We might feel kind of better short term, but long term, if the only things he has to say are what we already know, then we are gonna. Then it's a natural uh, path to deconstruction. And I see this all the time with people deconstructing. It's like all the people deconstructing, not all of them, a huge majority of people deconstructing are basically deconstructing because they never constructed. There's nothing to deconstruct. They just it was the fad, it's no longer the fad, and now they're out because they're with the new fad. And it's like there was nothing constructed there. So there's there was no real like thing that would move on regardless of me. And I, I thought this the other day, um, you know, God would probably, if you believe in eternity genuinely, then the physical death of, my physical death is not nearly as big a deal as as... I might like to think, you know, that American Christianity, for better and worse, and there is some better, it paints God as being so obsessed with me personally that I start to think that he's here to kind of do what I want. And as a result, you know, we just, we lose all of these like long-term, more mature like lessons. Whereas in reality, and I, I read this both in Lewis and some in Chesterton, that my, you know, my death is not really that big a deal. And I think that this might tie into the problem of suffering, you know, which is arguably the, you know, the biggest um, inhibitor to faith is like, if there's a loving God, 
then why do these things happen? And in a very straightforward way, one of the reasons possibly that things, bad things might happen on earth is that God lives in eternity. So nothing on earth is as big a deal to him as it is to you or to me. Like I think of like to me, my life is like the center of everything in the whole world that like and, and should be for everybody else too <laughs> right i've never been anywhere but in here like this is what reality is it is my head you know so like if i think of god as being uh you know as being subject to that then i'm naturally going to be unhappy because uh it doesn't because self-centeredness doesn't work as a, a mechanism to happiness it does short term it obviously does people wouldn't do cocaine if it didn't but long term, it does not. And so I think in a way, God does have it. And this is, I think the heart of atheism is, is convenience. And so I think that God, if you really believe in God, he does have it both ways that he is, if he's omnipresent, then he is with you in an empathetic way as you suffer here on this earth. But he also is not, um, he also is perhaps not ultimately as concerned with you as you are with yourself because we are all existing in his story rather than him existing in my story and so the god let's say the god of the let's say jesus is the and this is maybe theologically sus so just go with me but <laughs> but <laughs> let's say you know the the kindness of god is with you as you as you experience suffering in this world and then like God the Father or more the sort of God of the Old Testament is is also not necessarily going to step in and, and give you what you want or even take the suffering away because life ultimately is not at all about you. And that's not a bug. That's a feature. And um, yeah, just any thoughts on, on that, on, on how we might uh, take a more, a less self-centered uh, view of God and how, uh, let me put it in, in one sentence. Our, if we believe that God is obsessed with me personally, then that is a road to anxiety. I see our current anxiety-ridden culture as a result of not understanding God as clearly superior to us. And that if he is clearly bigger and deeper and the only thing that all of our lives are about, then only then is he big enough to relieve our anxiety. I think I mostly agree with that. I would tweak a few things. So you talk about uh, God not being so obsessed with us. I actually think he is obsessed with us, but not in the way that we are. Right. And here, parenthood has given me a wonderful insight into the way that I am with God. Right. So my son, when he has a dirty diaper or when he's hungry, it's over. You know, <laughs> the world is ending. And it doesn't even matter <laughs> if we're in the process of fixing that. He is unhappy and he <laughs> lets me know about it. Yeah. Uh, and we do something very similar with God. Uh, in, the, in the present moment, we can only see the pain, the inconvenience, the annoyance, the anger, all of these things, and we react to it then and there. Uh, and we're often very short-sighted to be able to see what God might actually be doing through it. The Apostle Paul, uh, in, the, in his letter to the Corinthians, he speaks about this thorn in the flesh, and he went to Jesus multiple times and asked him to take it away. And Jesus said that my power is made perfect in weakness, that he was going to be doing something through whatever this thorn in the flesh was. And I, I often bring that kind of idea to the theodicy 
when I want to talk about the problem of pain, but we are in a very poor position to be able to see what's going on because the, the, the rebuttal to this really is that the problem of pain is only a problem if, if an atheist could show that God could have no possible reason for allowing us to suffer. But the thing is, we're surrounded by reasons all the time in, in our own life. In little ways, we see, oh, this thing was terrible, but something else wonderful came out of it. Uh, and I, I, I like to tell a story that I stole from Trent Horn, whereby there was this young girl, and she was living in England, and she was given the opportunity for a holiday in America, and she was so excited. But then her parents wouldn't let her go, and she thought this was so unfair and so mean and so terrible. How does that story change when I tell you that she was going to go to America by boat and that boat was called the Titanic? <laughs> <laughs> and Trent ended up marrying a descendant of that lady. Uh, our perspective on here and now and eternity, are, 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 are we're not very good at being able to see either the greater good that can come out of it or, the, uh, or, or equating our moral development or our spiritual development with just our immediate discomfort. You know, we're, we're too quick to, to jump to that. We see, and, I think we see death as like the worst thing that could ever happen. Mm-hmm. Because, but you know, every, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. <laughs> and and there, there was a line from Lewis. He said, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. Hmm. So I, I think this, this thing gets into that idea of transcendence that you were talking about, that God is both close to us uh, but he is also transcendent. He wants something better for us than we even want ourselves. And when we reduce him to our butler, when we reduce Jesus to Mr. Rogers with a beard, uh, we're going to miss that. Hmm. And yeah, that's that's so good. I think we have this, I have this deep impulse to say like, but God, it doesn't make sense to me. And you, And if it doesn't make sense to me, then it can't exist. Because what I will deem as just or unjust is ultimately the the last word in the in all of existence that i my our deepest impulse is no it's i'm god yeah i know yeah 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 i know you're you know you created everything blah 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 no really it doesn't make sense to me and so i don't believe you anymore because i decided that you're wrong and it's this like underneath everything underneath all our you know academic uh you know titles or whatever is just this deep impulse that it i want i want what i want and if you don't make sense to me and 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 people suffer in ways that i obviously never have but we can't see eternity so it's just like here and now is everything to us if and so i saw this a lot in the way that i in the way that i grew up in the in the christian church i grew up in that it was sort of there were all these ways where we were this kind of gnosticism sort of crept in where all these like beliefs that maybe god created heaven but not earth and no one would ever say anything like that but it was sort of implied so um this like separation between the two and um but having a longer view, like even if someone dies unjustly here and now, or or what seems just totally, you know, non-rational, people just die. Like death is not the worst thing that could happen. It only is if there's only this life, and if there is an afterlife, then there, then that is infinitely more, you know, important than anything that happens in our life or death. Um, but 
anyways, yeah, so let's go into that. I want to talk about how Lewis paints a very like holistic picture, how, um, you know, so in one instance, it might be that he was like very widely read, something you pointed out in our in our emails, that those little things, these are some key things that really changed my life, that he did not have a fear of other religions. He didn't have a fear of things of non-Christian ideas. And I see this a lot within Christians, and they're very well-meaning, and, and I've been there, you know, myself. But there's this sort of, uh, with many Christians, there's a fear of touching those other things, and it shows a lack of confidence in the God of the Bible. It's, it's, and, and I grew up this way, very, you know, the, the church I grew up was very much this way, that like, don't go touch those other things the world has, because if you do, you won't come back. And it was it, it's born out of the an insecurity and sort of a let's say a ignorance of what we ourselves have, or maybe we don't. Maybe I don't truly know the God of the Bible well enough to know that there you can run away if you want, but there's nowhere else to go. Like this is <laughs> this is what reality is like. And so yeah, so Lewis's approach to that that. You know, every religion, every book, every person might have something true in it. And that little mm -hmm. bit of truth is, you know, is a little, you know, piece of, of the truth of God, even if they might be wildly off in, in all different ways. And that tracks so much better with me and, and, you know, both in the way that God uses people. Like, I don't know any person that that is like without flaw in the way they try to represent God. So I, you start to get, I start to get to this place where I'm like, why does he do it this way? Why does he use us knowing that like, if everyone did listen to me, if everyone did follow my instruction, that I would just like ruin all their lives in some other way. <laughs> like I, I, there isn't like a person that we could all follow that wouldn't have some downside. And, and so I guess maybe a, a more respectful view of God would say, because he knows what each of those people know and what each of those people do not know. So, you know, so he's not like, it's not, not all of it is writing on me and what I say right or what I say wrong. But let's talk about, I guess, the way Lewis is very, uh, you know, holistic or the way that he paints a very, um, you know, complete picture, I guess. Well, he adopts what is actually a very ancient Christian view, uh, the idea in the early church fathers, so the, the, the bishops and theologians of the early centuries, they looked around the world and they said that anything that is true is really a reflection of God and is therefore the property of us Christians. Mm -hmm. You know, if you believe that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God, that Christ is the Logos, then when we look around the world and see anything true, then that's something that is rightfully our property. And so that's what they did. They, 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 they went around and they thought they saw, for example, Greek philosophy, and they saw that this was a means of communicating Im about immaterial realities. So they took it and they made it the handmaid of theology. And there's a reason why the church exploded in the areas where the Greek, prof where the, uh, the Greek philosophers had previously been. And this is a point that both Lewis makes and the various early church fathers make. They saw the, uh, the Greek philosophers as something like a, uh, a parallel to the Hebrew prophets. The Hebrew prophets prepared the people for the coming of Christ. Well, in a, in a lesser way, the Greek philosophers did the same thing. 
And uh, Lewis even saw it in the pagan myths. He described it as God sending them good dreams, that in their stories, it reflected something of the aching of the human heart and also something of the Imago Dei, something of the image of God that is baked into every human, such that even the stories that they told were preparatory for the gospel. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. And it it ties in just a a more, I, I guess, a, a picture of God that is that is bigger, and um, I I saw this with I guess Thomas Aquinas I guess is a is a big figure in this where he I guess synthesized a lot of uh, Aristotle or whatever in in Christianity, and I, I see that kind of as my role and our role in our time that we we take what is good about um, you know the culture of our time and we synthesize that with 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 scripture I guess into contextualize scripture um to the to the world in which we live and that you know in in some ways maybe the reason that that god does use us is that much of our the meaning of our life is found in participation to that uh you know uh exactly i mean this is the great thing about the great commission we're called to be co-workers with christ uh Back in San Diego, when I ran a, a Bible study, we went through the Gospel of Luke, and then we carried on straight into Acts. And there was the way that Acts opens up really struck me, because Luke writes that in my previous book, I, the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about everything that Jesus Christ began to say and do. And I don't know if it was really in the text, but it, it, it made me realize that, well, that's what Jesus began to do in the Gospel of Luke. Well, in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, we hear about what he continued to do now through his church. And this is, this is a crazy idea when we consider that we are called to be co-workers with Christ. And even our ultimate destiny is to, as St. Peter says, to share in the divine nature. Uh, there's, a, there's a sermon that Lewis wrote called The Weight of Glory. And in it, he says, we are far too easily pleased. He says, we're messing around with drink and sex when something so much better is, is, is being offered to us. And he compares it to a child that wants to keep on you know, making mud pies in a slum because he has no conception of what a holiday by the sea is like. Hmm. Yeah, I see this as the role that Jordan Peterson um, has played in our culture. The reason that he's such an important figure is that um, as a Christian, he showed that Christianity itself he sh- was deeper than than we treated it as. Like so, as someone who was a Christian before he came on the scene, during and and let's say after, the the part that he played in in going into all his like long winded weird Jungian stuff or whatever, the <laughs> the value of all that is he's saying, look, this religion thing, this is not this like puddle that you're treating it as. This is a, an extremely deep thing that encaptures every single aspect of life, all of neuroscience, all of psychology, all of it. Everything true in all of these disciplines is here in religion. And so that is why he's been a transformational figure, because I think as Christianity took or had so much power in America, that it's sort of like, I, I think of it as the way that trends work, that you know when, let's say, the hipster trend came in, the first people to do it are like actual hipsters, but then everybody after that and the farther it goes, the less these people have any like authenticity to them where they're just falling in a mold. And it's just, a, I think it's maybe a natural um, sort of structure of how humans work. 
but that as cultural Christianity in America became so human, it it became let's say shallower and shallower because it became more uh, more human, and so as it was tied to cultural power, more of a cultural function than than anything sort of eternal, and so it, it, over time I could see it getting uh, shallower and shallower to where it became, you know, it, it just it became sort of like uh, I don't know it it I, I guess let's say mod. Uh, Protestant Christianity, let's say, 20 years ago, is just like you get people to say the prayer, and then if they say the prayer, then you go find someone else and get them to say the prayer, and then or something like that. And and it's like there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, God, um, you know, does use that, does use saying the prayer, and there's a, so much beauty in that too. But it, it's a very shallow thing. Like we're here to get people to say these words, rather than uh, I think a more a truer view is that um, the, the walk with God is, is maybe over decades or however long to change everything that I want most, that my wants are very slowly changed um, in, in the very painful process of God having patience as I continue to think I know what's going on. The phrase I like to use is Christianity isn't ketchup, it's a marinade. <laughs> yeah, yeah you can great. squirt ketchup on something and it'll change its taste but really the thing itself hasn't changed a whole bunch whereas what christianity is meant to do is you are meant to soak in those juices uh <laughs> so that uh so that uh more and more of you is brought under the lordship of christ and so you can eventually say with the apostle paul that is no longer i who live but christ who lives in me right and so even let's take even something like that what what is the temptation is that I will pretend that I am somehow farther down the path than you, and then I will sort of like get a rise out of that feeling, feeling like, oh, you do it like that, I do it like this, and I'm clearly superior to you, and that that is just like my evil instinct rearing its head again. That, you know, whereas the the farther down that path you were, actually, the less you would be inclined to, to, to show it off. And... um yeah, and so <laughs> there's a weird, a weird paradox in that where, and I saw this again. I saw this in myself growing up. I was so, I was definitely the like, um, I was a, a pastor's kid and stuff. I was definitely more on the straight and narrow than than most people, and much more strict than most people. And there are some real great things that came from that. So that's not all bad. But it's, it starts to be a red flag when you got to tell people how much more straight and much more narrow you are. <laughs> you don't seem to understand how humble I am so I must tell you uh, that when uh, Joy Davidman uh, who eventually married C.S. Lewis when she when she visited him uh, he signed a copy of The Great Divorce to her and he wrote uh, he wrote an inscription at the front to her and it was something along the lines of that um, uh, there, there are three great images I must repeatedly destroy and he wrote an essay about iconoclasm and he says it's, it's my image of God my image of myself and the image of my neighbor. Because mm. in all of those things, false images can be deadly. Mm. If I conceive of God in a way that he isn't, if I conceive of myself in the way that I'm not, and if I conceive of my neighbor as how he or she isn't, that is going to have some serious impact as to how I live my life. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Um, another thing I love about Lewis is how sort of he was both left brain and right brain, very logical, but also very imaginative. And that just like being on that line is just so 
probably like the key thing to me because um, as as I you know went through looking for you know books to read or or people's thinkers to to follow, I guess most I knew deep down that most people that would write some theology book could never write a story that a kid would be like excited about, and many <laughs> people who would write a great story for a kid could not write a theology book, and so to for someone to have you know to be very fluent in 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 the logic and in the imagination i think is a really key thing and i want to talk about how um sort of a an ability to grow our imagination is key to the future of christianity because um i i see a lot of in myself and i see a lot of thinking in sort of atheist terms and trying trying to be a christian but thinking in atheist terms right i see this in the way that that I think now, certainly in the way I've thought in the past, and and like I don't want to um, even sort of the church that I grew up in. There's a lot of sort of like we're materialists that go to church. We're not materialists <laughs> that don't go to church. We go to church, but 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 that's kind of it. And and so it was weird to me that the a lot of the um, things which uh, which I believed were untrue about the way that I did grow up, that the answers to those things were older, not newer. That, you know, when you grow up, you think that whatever, uh, you know, whatever sort of church or whatever your parents go to is like the oldest thing imaginable. <laughs> like, yes. there's nothing older than my parents, right? But, <laughs> but Lewis and these people that are much older really had a much more balanced um, view. But let's talk about- And that was actually a problem that Lewis himself had. Prior to even becoming a theist, he had this great war with Owen Barfield where they disputed philosophy. And one of the things that Owen Barfield cured him of was chronological snobbery, the idea that old ideas are old and out of date and they are bad, even if nobody has actually refuted them, and new ideas are modern and hip. And it, but the question of truth uh, is assumed, not actually proved. Right. And I see, I see, let's say, the beauty of Christianity as key to the future because if we're moving into a time where people are more um value things more by their like aesthetic or whatever then the beauty of christianity is going to be uh more of an apologetic than in let's say it has been mm. um and yeah. there's more there's more of a movement of this i've noticed in the last couple of decades i'm seeing more books about imaginative apologetics we're actually having holly audrey on the show next season to talk about this uh and, and you mentioned about us cultivating our imaginations. I would say it's not just for us, it's for other people. We not only need to present to people the truth of Christianity, but give them a compelling reason as to why, to capture their imagination. Because you only tend to really do things if you actually really care about it, if you can catch something of the vision. And that is what Lewis has done for so many people. They read his books, and they're not only convinced of the truth of a statement, but it's, it's, it's power and uh, uh, imaginative draw. Yeah. And I think about the way that, let's say, let's take even movies or something like that, that we need a lot more, we need stories that are not necessarily uh, religious stories, but they're stories that operate on Christian principles. On mm -hmm. They operate with a Christian framework of morality, rather than like, this is a story, this is a Christian movie <laughs> that only Christian people will go see. And as a result, it's just you, you get what you came for. You know, you know what it's going to be, and it is that thing. Whereas life is not like that. Life is very unpredictable. It's very painful. 
there are a lot of days that end terribly. It's just very like, there's just a lot of variation in, in actual life. And so, but we do need, uh, we need a, a conception of what is great Christian art, what is a full integration of the randomness of the variation of life and in the Christian sort of structure of, of morality so that we can have a picture of the future because you know like you said like we act like we're super rational but deep down like all biggest decisions all of them are made by story you know who you marry what job you have who we pick as president like everything is very like story based even though we think we've superseded that we have we're we're not as purely logical as we like to think that we are (laughs) Uh, and and your 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 question about uh, good christian art uh Lewis's friend, Dorothy L. Sayers, she was a fantastic author. She was an apologist in her own right, um, as well as a screenwriter and poet. Uh, She was very passionate on this subject. She said, good Christian work is work well done. And we have been, I think it was about, probably about 10 years ago that we had a a flurry of very, I'm just going to say very Christian movies. (laughs) They were very formulaic. There was always somebody uh, saying the sinner's prayer and they're convinced of the art uh, of Christianity in about 30 seconds for no apparent reason. Yeah. Um, and those are always very underwhelming. Right. Well, you Whereas, might argue they aren't Christian enough, right? They aren't really, they, they aren't really that Christian really. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to judge their motives, but, but the idea is it's not, that's not what fully integrated Christianity would even look like. It, it misses out on the something deeper. Uh, my wife and I recently watched Hacksaw Ridge which was an incredible movie and moving. But you see the themes in that that were much more powerful, much more powerful than some of that, uh, some of the quote-unquote Christian movies that I'd seen before. Here you truly saw love of neighbor, sacrifice for, for your brother, standing up for truth regardless of the consequences. And as a movie, that moved me much more than what was really, for some of those other movies, really just shallow Christian propaganda. Yeah. And it, and you know, and there's just a, they know it'll make money. And it's, this is what I find this so interesting about Christianity. We have a sort of built in mechanism where we can't, we have a hard time calling out people because as I try to call out someone, I, I, the pride that I give into as I do that is worse than the person I'm calling out. So we have, so we naturally, people of faith naturally are, you know, have at least a slight humility to even, uh, you know, to even be a, a religious, I guess. And so as a result, we don't really, it's hard to sort this from that because like, let's say someone came to God through one of those movies, like that's amazing. That is like truly amazing, right? And like, what an what a incredible thing that is. I would not want to take that from anyone, but I guess the picture is rather than tear down those things, like we need to just build you know build better better. things as well and i recently saw a movie called the way back it's a recent uh ben affleck movie it's a sports movie and it looks like it's going to be kind of a generic sports movie um but it's one of the best depictions of faith i've ever seen on on film really because um i think i believe his daughter passes away and he's very angry at god and he's anyway just if you have time just just watch it because it's a really moving piece and and a great depiction of when I saw that, I'm like, Oh, this is what a great Christian movie is because it's not, um, it's just a story about someone's life and the way that our lives may go. But this is like, 
basically when he he's an alcoholic and stuff and when his anger of god towards god doesn't change god at all that like there <laughs> by the end of the movie he he's he's like gone to to rehab or whatever but nothing about his emotional state changed what god was or even what he should do it, it's it's very like grounded in that way and the guy who made it uh, made some movie called warriors or something i don't know he's i don't know if uh, he's... that one i've seen okay so it, it's that guy and and mm-hmm. i think it's in the mold of that uh, but um but anyway it's a great depiction of this and and this may seem it kind of seems like fluff to even talk about christian movies but but long term like we have to have a picture of what it looks like because if we don't we someone else will give us their picture and and you know we're seeing that I see that every day I go on Netflix and I go, this is so dark. Like, and, yeah. you know, this is so underneath all of this, not all of it underneath. So much of this is nihilism is sort of a, a, a core giving up on the idea of good really existing. And, you know, I see that in like so much modern music and, and movies and all that stuff. There's just a hopelessness under all this stuff. And, and it's very like discouraging. And so just even for morale, we need to we need to really be great at art because um, we're moving into a time where truth perhaps means less to people than the way they feel. So let's meet them on their terms. Let's let's really give them a great picture of how how one should feel or, or how to, you know, how to use that, too. Lewis said that tr- uh, the mind is the organ of truth and imagination is the organ of meaning mm-hmm. and we need to give people both. Mm-hmm. And really, it's a returning to what the church once was. There was once a time when the greatest patron of the arts was the church, when all of the music, all of the art was sacred. Uh, and we just somehow got away from that. Uh, and we just we just do need to, to return to represent to people the gospel uh, now in new terms that, that they can hopefully understand, given the change in the cultural context. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, something I mentioned to Jimmy Aiken was that one way we might do this is to show that sin has a, a cost to us. And, and Jimmy misunderstood me a little bit, but um, in that, in, let's say in a Christian story, anytime some uh, sin is given into, that it should there should be some cost to that. Now, Jimmy thought I meant that, like, if you do something bad at the first act, then something bad has to happen to you in the third act. That was not at all what I meant. But I, what I meant was someone who regularly gives in to a really uh, low vice, they, it darkens their view of everything. I'll speak for me. Mm. Like it darkens the way I see everything. I see every person, including myself, and everything in my own life as less valuable. And so in a very subtle way, stories of that nature, stories where people do give in to vices should depict that it affects their ability to see value in their own life and in everything around them and people around them. You know, we stories, perhaps the most depressing movie I've ever seen. I've never come out of a movie more depressed than when I saw Deadpool because it was, it was so, it was so nihilistic. It was so, um, it was so heavily leaning into the meaninglessness of life. And just not that, Oh, I'm too good to laugh at or whatever. I mean, there were funny parts or whatever. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. But it it depicted that like this laughter is a laughter of recognition. This is where we are, 
and, and we see life as this meaningless. And it, it just, you know, generally made me uh, sad after that because it depicted what we actually believe. We actually live in this sort of meaninglessness. And to your point about imagination, young people especially, are we are really struggling to find meaning in, in life. And I think that these very um, long traditions of, of faith are, are where, you know, are going to be the places that that we can find those things, and I feel like you know you know young people, a young person who's really I know so many young men, and for a young man to go through a, a cycle of um, you know pornography and video games, and that kind of be his life, and to be told everything you might sacrifice for is is kind of pointless. Don't worry about getting married; that's just going to hurt you. Don't worry about trying to get a career; there's too much national debt. You're gonna you know, it, or whatever, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be worth it, you'll never buy a house, whatever. And, and, you know, there's just so much discouragement, that like, we're left with a situation where people don't see how meaning could really be had. And so we, you know, so we pull back to video games and pornography, what is something that makes me feel good? It doesn't cost me anything. But what we do as we do that is assume that life, our life has no meaning. There, there isn't anything to sacrifice for. We aren't someone heroic. We aren't. We never could be. We shouldn't even start down that path because we could never do it anyway. And you know, we go back to our mud pies. We, we yeah. don't even try and think about a holiday by the sea. <laughs> uh, and I would say, and sort of to sort of pull this together and to put a mm-hmm. bow on it, yeah, and yeah. to relate to uh, what we were saying earlier about stories. I think this is why um, in more traditional denominations, there is the practice of not only spiritual reading, but reading the lives of the saints, of those Christians who have gone before us. Because what we do when we do that is we read stories of virtue Mm -hmm. and are inspired by that because we get to see what a life in Christ would look like if you were a 16th century monk, if you were a, a married mother of three in the 20th century. As we see, as we read these stories of people living uh the christ life out and seeing seeing it work out in their in their time we ourselves are inspired and they keep pointing us back towards the goal which is jesus and union with god in heaven yeah i see that you know growing up in the 90s or whatever there was this implication that um i'm cool religion is not cool so for me to become religious would be me condescending to it i would like come (laughs) down to where it is and that was sort of where the culture was. But in reality, it condescends to you, to me, that I will be completely forgotten. I always use this example. Caesar took over the world. I don't really know what he did. I know he did something. But <laughs> when I think of Caesar, I think of little Caesar. So I think of Caesar dressing. <laughs> so little Caesar's pizza and Caesar dressing. So when I think of Caesar, who most likely conquered the world or something, this is how I remember him. And that ultimately, religion condescends to you, to me, that I will be completely forgotten, but this will not. And it is inviting you and me to participate in it, to take the misery of your time and to bring hope to it in whatever ways that that looks like in your, through your personality and through your gifts. That it is, you know, it is a welcoming into a story which will never die. And to bring us all the way back to our first topic, it's a going out of ourselves. All of the problems that we've spoken about, they're when we focus on ourselves and turn in on ourselves. 
And uh, when we went through the great divorce, the phrase I kept saying every episode was incavatus in se, which is this Latin phrase about a soul turned in on itself. This is, this is, this is really what real death looks like when we are just self-obsessed and we just turn in on ourselves. That's not the path to life. That's not the path to God. That path is to go out of ourselves, mm. uh, to love God and to love our neighbor. Mm. And I find that we, we, we think of, we have some problem with God. We think that God is cruel or we think something about him hates us so much that we have to, we have to look for enjoyment somewhere else. And then that doesn't work either. But that to come to God with all of our doubts, with all of the things that we might be angry about him, whatever those things are, to come right to him and go, I know there is nowhere else. Please help me with these things as I struggle in my unbelief or as I struggle in my feelings of rejection or whatever these feelings are. And that, you know, that squaring those things, Lewis really squared a lot of those things for me, a lot of doubts that no one would answer, a lot of questions I didn't want to embarrass someone by asking, that, uh, that kind of thing that he really brought a lot of those things together to say that enjoyment of life, of enjoyment of the most mundane thing, like looking at a tree <laughs> is completely uh, a gift from God, that God, you know, that God is not... Um, that God is not some thing that is just out there and angry, but that hit the fullness of life, that seeing the color of life and of all the people around you is really within what he wants. And that is not found from doing what you want. It's found, actually, like you said, it's found from finally, after much uh, trying the opposite, to looking what is outside of me, what is the value of other people, what is the value of God in Somewhere Lewis said that only when you begin to love your neighbor as yourself will you be able to love yourself as your neighbor. And uh, that's very counterintuitive to, to my instinct, but, um, but it is truly um, something that, you know, let's say marriage has taught me and certainly parenthood has probably, has probably taught you. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. And, uh, You're very welcome. I know we had some some technical problems, but, um, but we got it all ironed out and, uh, yeah, just anything you want to wrap up, tell people a little bit about, um, you know, I guess where to find your podcast and your work generally. Sure. You can find everything related to us at pintswithjack.com. Uh, we have done four seasons so far. We've been through mere Christianity, the great divorce till we have faces and the screw tape letters. And, uh, next month we are going to be starting, uh, a book i'm very excited about which is the four loves and you can find everything at that website and you can also follow us on social media we're on instagram twitter and facebook yeah and you guys it's twice a week right uh it was last season okay it was just covid everyone everything shut down we wanted to put out a little bit more sure. material what we're going to be doing this season is there will always be an episode on tuesdays mm -hmm. uh, that's when we'll mainly be going through the text and then probably about twice a month we'll have an extra episode on a Thursday. And these days were, were not chosen at random. Uh, Lewis would go to the Eagle and Child and have a pint with the Inklings on a Tuesday morning. And on Thursday night, they would get together and they would read the various manuscripts that each of them were working on. Oh, wow. And uh, if you are, if anyone listening is interested in picking up The Four Loves, I bought the audiobook of it. And it's actually Lewis reading it. I didn't, I kind of thought I would never hear his actual voice. <laughs> so I know, I know that like for someone re hearing this who doesn't really care about Lewis that much, it means nothing.
but to me it was like it was like magical that like oh this is what he actually sounds like this is really him like this is really him and i didn't have like anyone that i could like turn to and be like isn't this amazing this is his actual voice because like yeah. everyone in my life would be like uh and... cool story brian <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it is a great book it's also a short book which i really appreciate because i i went through it very you know quickly and i want to go through it again and and like i said to hear him in his own words is a, a really was for me at least a really sort of magical experience but um well, yeah we will be going through it slowly on the podcast <laughs> each chapter is going to have two to three episodes at least okay awesome well um thank you so much for making the time and uh yeah it's been great to to chat with you you're very welcome